after I'd been through this exercise a few times, I started to think, well, okay, ask me to write down a page of things that sound quite good things to be and do in life. Um, and I'll pick four of them and it'll feel great um, at the time. Uh, and if you ask me to do the same thing tomorrow, I'll probably pick four different ones and they still feel pretty good. They'll feel like things that, yes, I would like to feel that I'm living by, but at the end of the day, you know, these are all just good things and, and which ones really are important to me. When I learned to deliver values as a tool, um, I had to learn a little bit more about them. Um, so I think I understood a bit more how to describe them to other people. And uh, I would say now that a value is, you know, some people say, well, you've asked me to list all these things. What exactly is a value? Um, these days I say a value is something that you are motivated by and you can't put it in a box. So, for example, people might say, well, books are a value to me. Welcome to the biology of business, where we answer the big question. How can healthcare professionals like us who haven't sold out to the pharmaceutical industry and are spending money from our own pockets. How can we market and communicate our services, our expertise and all the things we believe in so that they reach the world and the people we wish to serve, yet still remain profitable? That's the question this podcast aims to answer. And I'll be sharing with you the anatomy and physiology of a business so that you can apply your clinical reasoning to your business reasoning and create healthy, sustainable and impactful clinics. I hope you enjoy listening and subscribe. Hello, welcome to the Biology of Business. I'm Kate, and today we have the absolute pleasure of being joined by Joe Turner. Hello, Joe. Thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Kate. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, so Joe, you're a physiotherapist and you own a couple of clinics. Can you just describe to the listeners what your journey has been to, through physiotherapy to being a clinic owner? Um, how far do you want me to go back oh. <laughs> from the start? Oh, you can remember. <laughs> I'll try not to take the whole hour talking about my my journey there. Um, yeah, so I qualified in 96, trained at Manchester. Um, I think I pretty much knew from the word go, like a lot of us, that I wanted to be an MSK physio. Um, but I did my rotations in Oxford and London, actually. Um, did about half of an MACP um, course, decided I couldn't hack it, got a little bit of specificity overload, felt a bit, um, ah, and got on a plane to Australia for uh, two years, well, Australia and New Zealand. So I had a wonderful couple of years out there working and travelling. Uh, came back and worked in Bristol, worked for the NHS a little bit longer. So all the, all the work prior to going away was in uh, the NHS I went back into the NHS, but more in locum positions. And then I made a very unconscious decision to move into private physio. Um, they, I was definitely starting to feel that I wanted to um, work with patients in certain ways and definitely spend a bit longer with patients. But if I'm brutally honest, um, nearly 20 years ago now, it was a decision of convenience. And, and when jobs came up and then I you know, just started working um, privately in Bristol. Uh, then life moved on. I met my husband and was pregnant and I won't uh, go into too much detail of the order of these things, but, um, I found myself thinking about things like families and, um, stability and long-term careers. And we moved up to this little town called Whitton under Edge. And I started working for a wonderful man, Chris Stevenson, who owned a very well-known clinic um, called Courtyard Clinic in Dursley. And the reason I knew about it was because 
in various locum jobs I've been doing in the area, like at the Winfield in Gloucester and even down south in Bristol, people seem to be referring to this wonderful man, Chris Stevenson in Dursley. So I thought, oh, go and that's close to where we're moving to. Went to work for Chris. Um, it was already quite a large clinic there. And I loved the community feel of that clinic. It was um, definitely the right place for me because I've never particularly enjoyed being in clinics where you just go into your treatment room, treat your patients, go home, don't talk to other people, don't go out into the gym, that kind of thing. And then uh, a few years later, Chris starts making noises about perhaps wanting to pass on the clinic. Um Hand on heart again, it sounds like I don't plan very much, uh, actually, because that's probably true. I don't plan very much. Um, I hadn't consciously thought I want to become a business owner. Um, I had started to think um, there are ideas I want to develop and ways I'd like to work. Do I want to do that independently? Can I do that within this clinic? Um, And then when Chris presented the idea that perhaps he might want to pass the clinic on, I started talking to another colleague and we we together bought that clinic. Um, for many years, we just owned this one large clinic. We grew, grew it even more. It's always been multidisciplinary. We probably brought in quite a few more um, therapies aside from physio and chiro, which are kind of the, the basis of the clinic. Um, and we ticked along. That was keeping us occupied very much for the first um, probably about 10 years of ownership. And then um, I'm smiling at the timing. In 2019, the opportunity came up to buy a second clinic in Malmesbury. Um, and we all know what a great time in the world that was to buy a new business. Um, but we did. We bought that from a, a chiropractor, introduced physio and um, some other therapies as a smaller clinic. Um, yeah, and so that's well, that's the journey as to how I got to be a clinic owner. And um, yes, it sounds very much like uh, by circumstance rather than design, doesn't it? <laughs> I think that's probably the story. Do you still practice as well as run the business, Joe? I do. I, I don't do a lot of clinical work. Um, I do some uh, physiotherapy and some Pilates, but uh, it's probably probably less than 50% of my working time now is doing that. And I've also, since as many people will know, trained as a coach. And um, some of my my time is spent uh, doing coaching now as well, predominantly coaching physios. And I was going to say you predominantly coach physiotherapists, particularly I understand around the topic of burnout. Is that correct? Um, Burnout, well-being, um, careers, uh, career transitions, a lot of life stuff that comes out alongside all of those topics. Um, Yeah, I mean, I I coach physiotherapists because I know physiotherapists and know their world, but I suspect the things that I end up coaching on are um, typical for any kind of life coaching session. They just happen to be with physios. And I mean, the feedback I often get is that people seek me out because they won't have to explain too much about the world that they work in and the water they swim in. Um, but the topics we end up talking about are wide and varied. So what are the typical issues that you're really aware of that are affecting physiotherapists at the moment? I think probably the most common thing that's brought to me or two most common things Maybe they're the same thing. Um, There's often a sort of um, conversation around transition. And I'm starting to develop develop theories about 
the pattern of a typical clinician career. Um, and I think people often come to me in one of those, I just traced out a graft and I, um, with my finger in one of those dips, um, for various reasons, people are often coming to me at a point where they're saying, I've enjoyed my career so far. I've enjoyed working in this field. I'm just starting to think, is this okay for the next X number of years? Or something isn't start, isn't feeling as right as it did before. Or I've got this really exciting idea I want to develop. I'm not quite sure if I've got it in me or how to go about it. So often career transition is a, is a starting point. Um, the other thing, which I said, is it the same thing? Um, often a, a period of say decreased um self-efficacy that's a very jargony term but just starting to feel a little bit less sure perhaps about uh the things they're doing all day every day wondering whether they are being effective wondering if there is a better way um just you know a little bit of questioning that maybe it's more comfortable to talk one-to-one to effectively a stranger than it is just to go and immediately announce to the people that you work with that you're feeling a little bit uneasy not quite sure if this is still where you want to be and exactly the way you want to be practicing um so yeah i guess they are both the same thing kind of transitioning questioning period have those issues increased do you think on the back of the last few years it's a really good question, which I would struggle to answer because I started coaching at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm. So uh, if I had a few years experience of coaching prior to that, I'd be able to compare. All I know is they have come to me uh, a lot in that period. Um, and I don't see it changing massively since we've theoretically come out of that COVID period. You know, there's still a lot of change in the workplace in every industry, I think, at the moment, too, isn't there? Yeah. So, Joe, some, one of the things we talked about is how important understanding what our personal values are so that we can make sure we um, hold them and align ourselves to them in our in our work. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting. I, I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with values or the concept of establishing values. So if I give you my, I guess, my cynic view of values, first of all, um, over the years, owning a business, you come across quite a few um, experts, business experts um, and life coaches. And in, in so many fields, the concept of establishing values seems to come up at some point. It's kind of a standard tool that will come out in so many of these um, sort of support roles. And after I'd been through this exercise a few times, I started to think, well, okay, ask me to write down a page of things that sound quite good things to be and do in life. Um, and I'll pick four of them. And it'll feel great um, at the time. Uh, And if you ask me to do the same thing tomorrow, I'll probably pick four different ones and they'll still feel pretty good. They'll feel like things that, yes, I would like to feel that I'm living by. But at the end of the day, you know, these are all just good things and and which ones really are important to me. Um, When I learned to deliver values as a tool, um, I had to learn a little bit more about them. so I think I understood a bit more how to describe them to other people. And uh, I would say now that a value is, you know, some people say, well, 
you've asked me to list all these things, what exactly is a value? Um, these days I say a value is something that you are motivated by and you can't put it in a box. So for example, people might say, well, books are a value to me. Um, you can put books in a box. There could be various values behind books, knowledge, adventure, um, escapism, all sorts of freedom, all sorts of things. And those are the values. And what you're trying to establish is how and why you're motivated by those things. I mean, that's that's why they're useful in a coaching context, because, you know, let's say the um, the value might be adventure. Um is adventure important to you because you're feeling at the moment constricted and you want to move away from this constricted feeling and, and you know, develop this sense of freedom? Or um, is it uh, that you're, so that's sort of moving away from something that you don't want? Or is there something very inspiring in the future that you know, a very clear example of adventure that is drawing you onwards and you're so inspired by that, that that's why it's so motivating? So there's this idea of is a value a towards uh, motivation or an away motivation. Um, more recently, I listened to a podcast and did some reading around um, uh, Brené Brown's theory of values. And she talks very much more about living into your values and making sure that when, when you pick one of these words um, and sort of run it through the filters of all parts of your life, your work, your relationships, your ambitions, whether those values feel like a good, solid background in all those scenarios. Um, and where I've come to personally on this is I've broken it down. I don't mind sharing my two um, core values of trust and kindness. Um, and within those, there are numerous other good values. But I find that often when I'm a little bit lost, when I'm trying to make a decision and I'm not quite sure, those two things will usually guide me. You know, where, where, where in this scenario can I um, exercise trust? Am I behaving with kindness? It's, it's quite a sort of steadying concept like to bring you back in line. Um, and the other area that I think they're valuable and maybe where you're going a little bit more with this, Kate, is sometimes your values tell you when your boundaries have been crossed. Mm, this is when I think they get defined. I, for me, I think they get most defined when you're highly uncomfortable in terms of identifying what is it? What is the boundary line that's been crossed? What? Why am I highly uncomfortable? Yes. And my. if we take my two values of trust and kindness, if I'm in a situation where you're right, I, I may not be sort of consciously explaining it to myself, but I'm feeling really uncomfortable and mm. ugh, about a situation. Trust and kindness are good filters. You know, has, has someone you know, uh, crossed my boundary of trust? Is there kindness going on here? Why am I feeling like this? Have I crossed my own boundary around kindness or trust? Um, they're kind of like checkpoints, aren't they, for something isn't right here. Okay, what, what is it? And, and then how can I bring it back into line based on those values? I think it's also really important to define what the word means to you. Um, so trust and integrity, for example, trust, integrity, honesty. Yeah. It's defined, making the word extend into a sentence for you. Yeah. So that it's got more meaning than just that word because your neighbour could think trust is something slightly different to what you think trust is. 
Yes. And it doesn't essentially matter, does it, as long as you've articulated it to yourself. And I think that's how you break it down to, say, two or three easy values, because you can you can start with this whole list. And I think a really useful exercise is to say, well, is, is integrity implicit within trust? And if I was behaving according to my understanding of trust, of course, there would be integrity. Of course, there would be honesty. So I don't need those as separate values. I know that they are implicit. And I think it's quite interesting whether we agree, disagree, and we're not going to particularly talk about it, but Gary Lineker over the weekend has clearly had a boundary line of his cross, made a stand, and people stood with him. People alienated him, but also people stood with him. So when you have a very clear position that is held by your values, it will also push some people away, but it will also draw others towards you. Yeah, and I think I think it's really important to understand that more in the realm of setting boundaries rather than values, you don't set boundaries to make other people feel comfortable. Um, sometimes that may be the result, but you know, even with trust and kindness, according to those lovely sounding values, my decision to set a boundary according to trust and kindness isn't necessarily going to please everybody around me. Um, but that's how I. I guess how I decide whether I can live with it, because if it's if it's consistent with my value, then even knowing that I have upset other people and as someone who hates upsetting other people, like all physios, um, I can sit more. I, I, I can cope with it if it sits within my values of trust and kindness. Yes, because, you know, you've been true to yourself. Mm. Yes. So sometimes, just as you described, physiotherapists or Lots of healthcare professionals who tend to be nurturers or allied health professionals who tend to be very nurturing can perhaps be very compromising in their own needs because they want to serve and please others, which can lead at times to a, a lack of boundary. Mm. Yeah, and I, and I wonder whether that's when when a clinician perhaps is going through a process of establishing values, I suspect the thought may be very much around the external world rather than within themselves. Or you you set a value, but then your application of it is very much external. Mm-hmm. So, you know, trust and kindness with patients, that's so easy to imagine, isn't it? How can I behave in a way that my patients trust me and that they think I'm kind and, and all the rest of it? But the yeah, often the much, much more difficult process is how can I treat myself with that integrity and honesty and kindness? Um, and I, I agree with you. I think over time we can unconsciously erode our own values in an attempt to be what we perceive um, our patients need us to be, our families need us to be. And that's not, you know, that's not a bad thing. It's we didn't go into these professions because we want to only think about our own needs. Um, but the balance can get so out of whack, can't it? Yeah. Yeah. And to the extreme that you are misused, that you are your kindness, your goodwill, your um, service is, is, is misused. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. Yeah. And if, do you mind me turning the tables a bit, Kate? Because I suspect from things you've shared with me before this podcast that you 
you have a, a thought currently about the extent to which those um, yeah. that, that um, is taking place. Do you do you have in mind particular scenarios um, where that? Well, was? in my mind, um, very very clear. I feel very clear about this. That as physiotherapists, our expertise are in physical health, physical well-being, and we know how to reduce comorbidities. We know the importance of physical activity, of social interaction, of purposeful activity. We know how to keep people well at home to prevent hospitalisation. And I think professionally, we handed over all of what we know to be true about good health over the last three years um, without question um and that does not sit well with me at all that we did not as a whole profession speak up about the importance of physical activity about the importance of reducing comorbidities about some very basic i'm not a respiratory physio but there are plenty out there respiratory exercises that you can do at home to keep yourself well the importance of having purposeful activity when you could go to Tesco's, but you couldn't go to the local corner shop and all these small businesses were closed. We we handed over everything we knew to be true about health and turned our back on it and therefore turned our back on ourselves. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose I reflect on how I feel about that. Certainly as a, not just a business owner, but as a um, a physiotherapist and as a parent in the early days of the pandemic, um, it didn't feel like I was handing over. It felt like there was no option. Um, by take us back, you must have been involved in similar scenarios, Kate. At the, uh, I remember being in the clinic um, during the weekend where it was becoming very apparent that the the message was going to come probably in the next couple of days that you couldn't um, have physical contact with people. I mean, in a therapeutic sense. Um, and you know, social distancing was going to come in. And I remember having all sorts of conversations all weekend with other clinic owners, with other physios, like, what does this mean? What's this going to be for us? Um, and then this kind of, you know, a few people going, we're not going to be able to practice, are we? You know, if, if the bottom line is we can't put our hands on people, then it's pretty clear. And that was in the midst of um what felt like uh a lot of a lot of fear and at the time justifiable fear because we didn't know what was going on and we didn't know what we didn't know about covid at that time so i would say that that didn't feel like handing over that just felt like oh okay we've got to this is what we've got to do um see this is where you're more obedient than i am joe probably and probably the majority of the profession are because <laughs> well this is what i say to my son my son says mommy what rules do you follow Drive on the left and stop at red traffic lights. And that's it. <laughs> well, there's obviously a few more than that, but the essence of it being, if the rule doesn't make sense, yeah, why are you complying? I mean, in the face of the sorry, Kate, it feels like I'm interviewing you on the other no, end. Okay. In the face of that, um, in the face of the messaging at that time around COVID, did you instantly did you not believe it from the word go that we needed to lock down was there was there ever a time it was necessary no i dislocated my shoulder on the friday night at the ice friday afternoon i'd gone to the ice rink i think it was a friday afternoon 
I'd gone to the ice rink in Swindon, thinking I was still 14 and still able to jump and twirl and spin, which I could, but not quite with the same <laughs> strength as I could when I was 14. And I fell and caught my arm on the barrier and dislocated my shoulder. And ended up in A&E that, that late afternoon in Swindon. And by the time I came out of A&E, it was up. Everything was, it was known. So that was the Friday, I think that was, a, was it a Friday evening? I think it was a Friday evening. Hmm. But no, I remember even being there. Just, 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 I don't know. Just knew this is a load of nonsense. That was how I felt. Hmm. And they asked, did you have this, that or the other symptom? I was like, even if I did, the answer is no. Just get my shoulder back in because it bloody hurts. And hmm. I know the pain will be gone as soon as it's back in. I was livid. I was really, but, um, and no, I didn't. I it did not make any sense to me right from the word go. It didn't make any sense. And presumably it didn't, that didn't change as we went through the... No, in fact, I just got more, more, more evidence for why doesn't make this make sense? Why doesn't this make sense? I then was just searching for more and more answers in terms of how on earth is the world... Yeah. Like, you know, what, what, how we got to this position. That's what I then went searching for. Um, no, I think you're right. That we, sorry, go on. No, it was, but it was from the position of this makes no sense. This is not okay. This is not right. Why is this compliance? Why? Why, why is this going on? Mm. So then I went searching for answers for for um, how we ended up in this controlled state. Mm. Yeah, well, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I'm probably naturally. Slightly more obedient. I would hesitate to call myself completely obedient. I think as time went on, um, you know, more uh, disobedient or rebellious ideas came out, and and certainly, you know, with the luxury of hindsight, I now look back and go, well, yes, you know, look at what it did to um, people's health, to um, people's mental health, particularly children's mental health, um, all of these things. Um, I suppose pragmatically, now I take the view, well. You know, unless we actually wind back time, take people to task uh, for things which most of us went along with, then is that helpful? What appears to be a helpful conversation or what feels like a helpful conversation now is how do we um, reflect on that and what is our messaging with that as a kind of very useful look what happened when we stopped Um, interacting with people and being able to encourage them and get them outside and and all the things that you've just described that that feels like a it feels almost more important now that we go look that wasn't great was it so we, we we our gut was that this is what we need to be doing this is what we've been doing most of our careers let's not just get back to it let's let's do more of it um, yeah and no, I, th- I think you're I think that's really right that there's a point where there's a line in the sand now and tyranny has always existed. People are always after power and control and they take power and control by controlling the ordinary man and woman on the street. And this time around in the tyrant's power grab, the medical profession, health and medical professions were used to, um, well, I believe used nefariously to execute a plan. Um, and I do think we need to be a lot, lot savvier as professionals on how we understand health and what health is and how we deliver people health autonomy, which I think is for physiotherapists, dietitians, allied health professionals. Actually, we have most of our tools, 99% of our tools 
are about trying to deliver people back their health, hand them back their health, and are driven by supporting behaviour change once we've overcome perhaps structural challenges or you know, knowledge challenges that are required. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's through us being very, very clear on what we know to be true about health and how we return health to the individual in front of us that we can perhaps hold a better place if we are challenged challenged or misused in future or asked to do something that goes against our professional values and what we knew know to be true. Such a good point, Kate. And actually I'm mindful when you're when you're talking about I don't know if you remember or or notice the same, but as we moved through maybe second, third lockdown, I noticed lots of conversation in the profession around we need to define what we do. Um, it was coming out all the time and various people had different projects to try and get people's opinion. And it, to be honest, my uh, what I observed around that is that we never really nailed much down there. Um, and you know, maybe it was a perfect storm that... Um, would you agree, Kate, that for most of the time you and I have been qualified, um, there's been a breaking down of most of the things that we were taught at university, which I was always really cool because um, back to the MACP days, you know, a lot of it didn't sit that comfortably 20 years ago. Um, so through our careers, there's been this kind of breaking down of the the old paradigm, but nothing massively sort of cohesive coming out of that and then we go into covid and you know if we're honest pre-covid there was lots of talk about um moving to uh different ways of practicing that were probably more time and money efficient and those were starting to feel a bit of a squeeze yes maybe you know there's enough of a conspiracy theorist in me to think well that was quite a convenient platform then to push some of those things a bit harder but you know, if if we not if we do seem to have been so at sea about collectively what we think we are, how how can we defend that message? How it's almost going back to the values conversation. We don't really know what our fundamental values are as a profession, mm-hmm. um, so we can't defend them as a whole. We can probably defend them individually, um, and even as small groups, you, you find your tribe, don't you? The people that like to work the way you do, um, and and those are growing. And I think actually there's a there's starting to be a fairly significant um groundswell of exactly what you're talking about, this real integrative and functional way of rehabilitating people. But we've kind of got to hold that line now. Um, and if I do. Like- I, I agree because um, you only have to look at the comments on newspaper articles and newspaper columns. It feels like the public are ahead of a lot of the professional bodies at the moment. The public are ahead in terms of figuring out, hang on a minute, maybe I don't need all of these pharmaceuticals. Maybe mm. I could actually do something about my blood pressure, my diabetes. They're extending their thinking and recognizing, hang on a minute, I better take a grip of my own my own health. Yes. Um, and do I really need a doctor? Do I trust a doctor? I've certainly seen plenty, well, I've written one, but I've seen plenty of articles about mm. what is the role of the medical professional there. Mm. Um, and so I think the public are in are getting way ahead of the professional bodies, but are still searching or wanting guidance 
on, well, if I want to come off my blood pressure tablets, what, what, what should I do? Where do I begin? How do mm. I start to get fitter? Like, you know, I've got a bike in the garage. Well, I can ride it, but how far is too far? Well, they're still wanting some guidance on, right, well, I want to lose weight. Or, you know, yeah, it's about time I did something about my bad back. So the, the public is starting to take a lot more ownership of their health, but still wanting some guidance, some accountability on getting them to where they want to be and breaking down whatever barriers or questions that they have. And I think for physiotherapists, it's very, very safe at lunchtime to say, I'm going to pop out to the physio clinic. It's not got any stigma like saying I'm going to a counsellor or a psychotherapist or whatever. You can easily say I'm going to the physio. I think it's, we have a prime role in helping those people reclaim their health in, in, and putting it back in their hands and helping them break their barriers down because they're ahead of the game for most of the profession. And how do you feel, Kate, about how much we should defend the the boundaries of our profession in terms of the scope of practice? Um, I'll explain why I'm asking that. So I, I think... Well, I'm probably struck up at the end of this conversation, Joe. Sorry, can't say that again. You're I'm struck. probably struck off at the end of this conversation. I don't worry about it. <laughs> no boundaries. No, I don't worry. It was a slightly safer question than that. You're fine. Um, so again, if it's I... really important. And okay, there's one of the things I think is really important, which won't just apply, will apply to a lot of very experienced practitioners as well, if there's ever a problem, your insurance usually insures you for what the average physio would do. Mm-hmm. Now, if you feel you practice outside of what the average physio would do, I think it's sensible to ensure that you are insured for your full complement of skills. What kind of extra insurance would you take out if you were advising somebody who was practicing that way? Well, I I will put the link. There's again, there's another article I've written about it, but I'll put a I'll put a link to the article underneath this post where I've written it. This is, I would contact several different independent insurance companies who will be in the article, and I'll give them a ring explaining what it is you do and choose the one that's the best fit for you. Westminster were the best fit for me, but you know, different. They were different ones. Yeah, I agree. And, that, and you know, and on that technical front, I do the same. I've got um, insurance with a, with Balans that um, covers all the the three different hats that I wear. Um, but actually, no, I say it was less scary, and that was more philosophical. Um, my my thought and my question. So, I suspect personally, and I imagine I probably speak for a few people will will, will this will resonate with. I went into a profession um, that suited my love of physical activity and the body and my interest in biomechanics Mm. very early on I was questioning all sorts of other things and um, have always I think part of my frustration in my career is the limits to which I'm qualified to bring in all the things I'm interested in and the things I see I want to support my clients with now um, going back to my sort of journey into being a clinic owner I love the fact that Courtyard has so many disciplines that I can access. And over the years, we all get to know other people in other professions, don't we, that that we we know do the kind of work that we want to support our patients with. And there's lots of referring. But um, I guess I was just thinking about uh, this question that keeps coming up, particularly around allied health professionals. You know, is it even relevant to have physiotherapists and um podiatrists and nutritionists and psychologists and and you know, I th- yes I do think the answer is yes it is but you know, either we've got to work so much better together 
yeah. all we've just got to admit that two or three of those professions, there's not a hair's breadth between yes. what one cl- uh, clinician would do than another one, despite the fact they've got a different job title over the door. Yeah, um, and that um, was very typically between well, physios and OTs is very very common one. Mm. So physios and musculoskeletal podiatrists, obviously, we mostly don't know how to do the insoles, but that there is. Um, well, I think it's about nailing down who it is that you want to serve. It's all about who's who is it that you wanting to serve? Who is it that you are wanting to help? And what are their needs? And if you have the skills to be able to meet their needs, then you meet their needs, regardless of your job title. Because the person on the street in pain wants their pain gone. So the person on the street with shin pain that's struggling to walk a mile because their shin hurts. They could choose to see an MSK podiatrist or they could choose to see a physiotherapist or probably a foot health practitioner or whoever. But it's about you having communicated to the person. They don't know what job title to choose unless their neighbour over the fence or the chap at running club tells them to. Mm. It's about you communicating to that individual that you understand their pain and that you have the empathy and the credibility to be able to treat them and we need to get a little bit less focused about ourselves and more focused on the people that we serve mm, yes and, and let's face it people care a lot less than we do whether they are seeing a physio or a chiro or an osteopath they are going to see joe or kate or yes. you know, whoever they have decided is their person the, the other thing that came into my head when you were talking before was um, at the beginning of the pandemic i was working with a group of doctors predominantly um we, we created a website of resources to uh, well-being resources to support people through the pandemic we just sort of it was like a, a big um collection of of services available and signposting options and we all did a kind of collective meditation on healthcare um many generations into the future and there were seven or eight of us there and we all fed back what had come into our minds as our sort of vision of healthcare in the future. Every single one of us had some version of there are no health professionals anymore. There are communities with layers of support. So um, there is much more of a sense of um, innate wisdom and knowledge in a non-health professional. Mm-hmm. So within yeah. families, within yourself, yeah. trusting that yeah. innate then there's another tier of somebody who is a bit more clued up about how to exercise or what to eat or something like that. And But what there isn't is this kind of guru layer um, mm. of somebody absolutely knows everything about everything or even about this specific thing. It was we all wanted a sense of much more trust in the fact that A, our, our bodies want to be well. Um, yes. And that we do innately know how to support our bodies to be well. Um, yes. And I think that's really, really powerful, Joe. just that phrase there, that it is, we trust our bodies want to be well. Mm. The other day on LinkedIn, I saw a post, it was by a physio, I think they were in the US. I can't remember the precise words, but the, the message was, it's not normal to be healthy. Be lucky, be grateful if you are. I can totally resonate with being grateful for being healthy, but hang on a minute, being healthy is the normal state. Yeah. We've got to a very, very sick world if we think being healthy is not the normal state. Mm. And even in sickness, our body still wants to be well. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's about us creating and providing that right environment or, like you say, seeking the advice of people that 
do know how to help create the right environment. And this, again, is where I think that the general public are starting to get well ahead of um, some of the professional bodies in deciding, right, hang on a minute, I'm going to sort my diet out, I'm going to sort my habits out. Yeah, and for me, again, you know, perhaps more trust than kindness, but that's where trust, my trust value comes back in. Mm-hmm. Trust my clients to have a good idea for themselves what's going on and what works best for them. Um, trust myself that I may not have the exact answer or the best answer in any moment, but I have experience and I've got all sorts of things to draw on. Trust that I will um uh, come up with something helpful at the time, but ultimately trust that between the two of us and the fact that this person and this body wants to be well and I want them to be well, we will find our way. Yes, and I think that's absolutely so true. So, and the, the idea that every person, I remember really, really been taught probably quite young, so it's really stuck with me in my quite young in my career, that every person has a story and your job is to tease out the story and the answers in the story. So it takes quite a lot of pressure off you as a clinician if you're facing somebody who you might consider to be complex and you're just simply trying to listen and pull out the story and the answers in the story. And you just described coaching to me and that's why that's people often ask, why did I go into coaching? And I can say, because I realised I was already doing it. I just didn't realise it was called coaching. (laughs) That was the way I intuitively, I wanted to trust people. I wanted to find out what they thought was going on. Super. Joe. if you could just summarise this conversation in a sentence or two. Values are there to guide you and to hold you steady. Um, and to let you know when your boundaries have been crossed. Um, and do trust that in holding in holding that line, you will find your way, your patients will find your way. And yeah, that final line, we all want to be well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you very much for joining me today, Jo. Pleasure. It's been great fun. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this podcast valuable, here are four ways I can help you grow your practice for free. Firstly, visit www.marchandmethod.com forward slash grow. There you'll find access to the free Profit Without Pills program. You'll also have opportunity to register for the free web class, the triage call, and you'll be able to sign up for the weekly email newsletter where you get hints and tips on how to create a profitable and sustainable practice. And finally, please leave a five-star review so I can get access to influential people and speakers and bring them here so that they can share their lessons with you.